Welcome to the Data for Resilient Cities podcast series, exploring how data can help cities become more resilient, smart, and responsive to challenges. This series is brought to you jointly by Center for Applied Geomatics, CRDF, and by CoData, the Committee on Data of the International Science Council. Via this podcast series, we bring to you reflections on the interdisciplinary approaches and the innovative use of data taken by various cities, offering examples of good practices and lessons learned. Hi, this is Shelly Gandhi from CEPT Research and Development Foundation. Today, we bring to you an episode on Towards a Paradigm Shift for Open Data in Planning for Urban Sustainability, Livability, and Resilience. In this episode, we have Avnish Pendharkar, Executive Director, Center for Urban Planning and Policy, CRDF India, in a conversation with Darren Robinson, Professor of Architectural and Urban Science, School of Architecture, the University of Sheffield, UK. I welcome you both on the episode. Thank you, Shelley. Hi, Darren. It's a pleasure to do this podcast with you. And, uh, you know, let me, let me start by asking you a two-part question. First, what is urban sustainability, resilience, and livability? And is it really possible for us to define these terms in the context of data points, which we can define, measure, and model, so that we can see how cities perform today and in the future? So that's um, an incredibly complex two-part question. Um, and I wish I could say that there was a really easy answer. Um, so let's take sustainability first. So we, we have a, a Brundtland definition that goes back to the 1980s, which is all about intergenerational justice. And so, you know, that at a conceptual level is, you know, is, is useful. Um, and we have the three pillar concepts of social, economic and environmental sustainability that has emerged again since the 1980s. Um, although the origins of that conception are, are somewhat unclear. Um, but if we want to kind of dig down beneath the conceptual level and try to arrive at some kind of operationalizable understanding, well, then we start to get a little bit unstuck. So we don't really have a solid theoretical conception of what sustainability means. We don't really have, you know, following on from that conception, um, clear metrics which, for, which we can use to determine how sustainable a city really is. If I was to ask a mayor how sustainable is your city, I think the mayor would really struggle. They might give a view, but they wouldn't be able to arrive at some kind of quantified understanding of how sustainable the city is or how it relates to other cities. And it's similar with resilience. So we can identify what we mean by resilience at a conceptual level. So we have some socio-technical system that's able to absorb and recover from disruptions, be they social, economic, environmental, or perhaps even geological. I think the situation is a little bit clearer when it comes to livability. So we have, you know, solid understandings of what we mean about health and well-being, perhaps to a lesser extent um, relating to social inequalities. So the, the definitions, I think, uh, need more work. And I think, you know, there's a lot for us um, academics to do in consultation with, with stakeholders. And... We have, nevertheless, some metrics that are, that are come about through the UN's Sustainable Development Goals, and that is helping. 
Um, but the other thing that we need, so we have some metrics that help us to determine the point of origin, but I think we need more work there. We need stakeholder consultation to arrive at an understanding of what should be future targets for how systems perform, so our destination, if you will. And of course, we need models so that we can test hypotheses um, for the most viable way of making the transition from our point of origin to our destination. There are lots of such models, but they're really heterogeneous. And they seem to have different scopes, different scales of application, different spatiotemporal resolutions, different future time horizons, and they're able to ask different questions. And that, of course, impacts on the kind of data that they need to be calibrated. So um, that was a fairly long-winded answer of saying <laughs> that it's, um, it's, it's really incredibly complex, that the landscape of models is heterogeneous, likewise with respect to metrics. And that you know, has cascading influences in terms of what sort of data is needed. It's tricky. Yeah, precisely. And planning challenges begin with the collection of such data sets. Because in my experience with all of the planning work that I have done, I've often found that there's a lot of diverse information that is available about a place, a city, an urban local body. But it is not in a shape or form that can be classified as a proper data set because one is not able to see all of this information and tie it all together instantly like typically data sets can allow you to do. I recall uh, Simon Hodson's uh, words. He, as you know, is the executive director of CoData. In this podcast series, he talked about data that is fair. Um, findable, accessible, interoperable, and reusable. The problem with information that is available here in our cities and towns is, particularly for planning processes, is that it does not meet this criteria. Uh, take, for example, cadastral data. When you go into a city of a large metropolitan area, you do get village data uh, in the form of village maps, which by themselves on a standalone basis make perfect sense for that particular village. But when you start putting such data sets next to each other, you start to realize the mismatch in their boundaries and the kind of uh, problems with boundary definitions, the individualized methods of collection and the display of information. Very often I've come across uh, high flood line data sets that do not sit on a consistent cadastral base map across uh, jurisdictions. And therein lies the challenge for urban or regional planners. So how is this managed in the UK? Are there any consistent data practices like in the US, for example, uh, where at least a substantial amount of data of such kind is available through standards that are set up by the USGS or regional planning agencies? I wish I could say, yes, we've got wonderful consistency in, in how we um, understand data, how we um, collate it and process it and make it available. but. Um, but it's not really the case. I think that's possibly in part because we don't really have, you know, a, a solid um, theoretical understanding of what we mean by those sustainability, resilience, livability concepts. Perhaps also simply because um, data, at least when we're talking about, um, let's say, top-down cadastral and socioeconomic data, is perhaps difficult and expensive to obtain and um, and to process and share in, a, in an ethical manner. We do have some cities in the, in the UK that have made um, amazing strides. So London, for example, has its London data store from which you can, um, you can access data. 
Um, London's, you know, had great success in making transport data available to support the development of, of transport planning apps, for example. And Glasgow has the Urban Big Data Centre, although there are constraints relating to data that can be shared from that data centre. But those are two capital cities that are relatively wealthy. Elsewhere, I think the situation is quite, um, quite variable. And as you mentioned, um, it's complicated by the, the issue of boundaries. You know, those are, those are spatial and jurisdictional and functional. It's quite difficult to isolate the flows of resource, for example, across um, jurisdictional boundaries. And because a contiguous sort of city representation might cross multiple jurisdictions, and those jurisdictions might have different um, practices in the collation and uh, management and sharing of data, then it frustrates efforts to characterize how the cities perform, and it frustrates efforts to, um, to acquire data to calibrate models to test ways of, in which they could perform better. Quite recently, I finished uh, with, a, with a relatively large team uh, a project in which we were trying to develop a, a fairly integrated model of the city of Nottingham. So we were modeling land use and land use and transport interactions. We developed a 3D model of the city that we were using to test ways of decarbonizing the building stock of the city and so on. But we really had difficulty because we were crossing three different jurisdictional boundaries and it made the process of, uh, of putting together a harmonious model um, really complex and you know, time expensive. So the situation is quite varied in the UK. We don't really have consistent data practices or standards for the ethical cleaning, capture and formatting of open data and for the exchange of data between urban system models. So I'm kind of curious what the situation in India in which you do have a really strong IT industry, possibly even bigger financial challenges to the collection and use of, of urban data. What do you think, Avadish? Well, I'm somewhat less inclined to think that there are financial challenges to collection of data. Uh, after all, over the last eight years, we've spent over 9,000 crore rupees, which is somewhere in the range of 1.2 billion US dollars, to bring in Aadhaar, uh, which is the unique identification authority of India's program for giving a unique identifier to all residents of the country. So the point is, if we decide to spend the money to collect data, we can find the resources. But compared to something like Aadhaar, which is about personal information and has certain finite number of data points for each person, urban areas are quite complex. When you have to tackle subjects like sustainability, resilience, and livability, you need to collect so much more information and diverse data points about a place. And the challenge is also that you need to develop a unified model and an associated data management platform that is much broader in scope. Further, such an exercise involves diverse groups of people with different and specific technical skill sets to gather the information, parse through it, organize it to create a data set that is fit for its purpose. Now, quite frankly, this is time consuming. It tests your patience, which is why agencies and organizations absolutely hate the idea of data collection and the disbursement exercise. But interestingly, Darren, there is another very interesting model that has come about by way of the Real Estate Regulatory Act, or RERA as we call it, which has relied on a regulatory system to gather information from people or the larger sort of agencies and developers. Now, RERA as a regulation was brought in to protect the consumers, largely in the private housing development and delivery space. And it requires developers to provide complete details of the projects 
that are on offer to the buyer. To me, it represents the first real example of an open and transparent data collection and disbursement mechanism in the urban development sector. It is not without its faults, but three years since it first came into existence, data from radar portals today is proving to be a game changer for property buyers, financiers, the developers, and the development industry as a whole. Because there is so much information about housing location, housing supply, demand, price point, absorption, which is all available on a single portal at a city, town, or a state level. Imagine that. Now, this is as regards sort of, you know, large, large regulatory bodies kind of coming in and playing their part in the data collection and management process. The, the third example uh, is interesting because what I want to focus on is within the data landscape in India, there is almost an explosion of the point cloud data set uh, that is actually come into being with the use of drones and very high quality cameras. Uh, essentially in the last five to seven years, a lot of the field work uh, in the areas of urban planning is being done through uh, drones and is this kind of drone system is actually replacing satellite imageries. The reason why this is being used is because the point cloud data sets are easily convertible to vector-based data sets. So what is ha essentially happening is the cost challenges of high quality satellite imagery are actually being replaced by point cloud data sets. And essentially we are going through a technology leapfrog to enable us to be able to get high quality data at relatively low cost. So that's sort of the big thing that's happening. The, the big question really is when it comes to programs like Aadhaar or RERA, uh, largely these are all top-down exercises. And for cities, you really need very granular data. It's best acquired from a bottom-up approach, I feel. So from your perspective, Darren, what are some of the opportunities and challenges with such a bottom-up approach uh, in planning? Before I answer, I would just like to say that I think... Um... You know, we need both top-down and bottom-up initiatives. So it's really nice to hear about some of the amazing initiatives that are that are happening in India. Um, but to answer your question, um, I think we've got, um, yeah, a really broad diversity of different um, relatively bottom-up data sources. We have volunteer geographical information or VGI data. We have transport system cards like the Oyster card in London and other transport networks and in other cities have similar kinds of card. We have customer loyalty cards that collect your spending patterns when you um, shop in supermarkets. And obviously we have similar practices online. Um, we have smart meter data. We have social media data, which is particularly valuable. But these raise some interesting questions like who really owns the data? In principle, I should own my travel and my energy data, but can I really access it? Do I really have a say over how that data is, is used and how it's, um, or who it's sold onto? VGI data, like OpenStreetMap, is in principle really valuable, but is it reliable? How do I assure its quality? And do I really have ground truth data to verify the inferences I may make from the processing of, or the mining of social media data? Well, no, not really. So yes, data is increasingly abundant and has the potential to be incredibly valuable. But I think we have to take care um, in how we use that data. Um, we have to clarify who owns that data. We have to clarify practices about how that data is shared um, in a suitably anonymized and aggregated manner. 
Um, and we have to yeah, have, I think, far greater transparency. We also in the UK have some interesting anomalies. It's um, frustratingly common for local governments to commission third parties to acquire data for them to support their decision making. Um, but they often tend to sign non-disclosure agreements so that they don't actually own the data that they're commissioning. And local governments are still very much structured around their departmental silos. And so they often don't even communicate with one another. So data isn't really utilized to its, um, to its true potential. We also increasingly have data gatekeepers in the UK, and they tend to be based in university research groups. But, you know, being an academic myself, you know, I, I observe, and perhaps I'm partially guilty of this myself, that um, we're, we're rather selfish individuals that want to um, exploit data for our own purposes before releasing that to the, to the wider academic or non-academic communities. So I wonder whether, you know, universities are really the right entities to be um, data gatekeepers. Perhaps there ought to be some independent body that has the sharing of data as part of its mission. So it's kind of complicated. I suppose we're drawing to the end of our, of our podcast now. And Avanish, I was wondering what you think are the main sort of take-home messages from this subject area. So Darren, what I hear you say is that real positive change in the data collection cycle will come through a change in culture, perhaps. Uh, one that values data collection, management, publication as the key to ongoing activities to continuously measure and improve our performance for better sustainability, resilience, and livability. But for something like this, I feel we also need a broader policy framework, maybe something that gets crafted at a national or state level, but ultimately something that gets adopted at the city, town, and the urban local body level, so that we are able to gather and share data. Because I feel that it's only when we begin to trust the process of gathering and sharing of data sets that people at large will begin to recognize the change that one wants to see in aspects like sustainability or livability. And that's really where we would like to go, right? Yeah, I totally agree. I think we really do need more work to reinforce the theoretical underpinnings of these really devilishly complex concepts like sustainability, resilience, and livability. We need to you know, define what we mean by them. We need to identify metrics against which we can measure how cities perform. We need processes to agree on what should be future targets. And of course, we need models to support the transition process. And as part of that, I think it's really important that we bring different stakeholders around the, around the table at the different hierarchical scales at which um, sustainability, for example, policies are conceived and enacted. And I, so I think we need to, we, need to um, we have a lot to do, we need to go further and we need to do it faster. But I take huge optimism from the fact that we do now have the UN Sustainable Development Goals, that we do have the Paris Climate Change Agreement, that that is finding its way into international policy. And indeed, that's beginning to drive the setting of targets for cities and regions. For example, the Sheffield City region has recently set 2040 as its target date for becoming carbon neutral. And I think that's incredibly exciting. And I think there's growing consensus that we need to address not just climate change, but also the strong inequalities that are all too often concentrated in cities. I also take enormous optimism from the fact that the urban modelling community is growing fast and that, albeit through voluntary efforts, standards like CityGML and its application domain extensions are maturing really quite quickly. 
So isn't it exciting? I think the, the young urban modelers of today and tomorrow and data scientists too face a really exciting future in which they can affect real positive change. Absolutely, Darren. I agree that there is uh, there is there are a lot of opportunities for young urban modelers, for agencies, whether they might be for-profit, non-profit, or government, to be able to collect data, use fair practices, and make good quality data available to people. I feel there isn't a need to be able to make a distinction between who gets the data. Anybody that has access to the data should be able to use that for a larger good and a larger purpose. I believe that that really should be the principle on which an open data platform needs to be built ultimately. Thank you, Avanish and Darren. It was very interesting conversation and especially looking at the recent times and the shift of moving towards open data and fair data policy is indeed interesting zone where people need to get into. Thanks for listening to this episode from the Data for Resilient Cities podcast series. If you like our podcast and want to know more about the series, check out our website www.crdf.org and follow us on social media. Please leave a review and like and share wherever you listen to the podcast. Look out for the next episode and join us next time. Mm-hmm.